Good morning. It's good to be here with all of you this morning. Let's go to the Lord and pray. The title of our sermon this morning is Trust the Lord, Not Yourself. And as we were talking about it before the service, that's a pretty common theme throughout the Bible. We ought never trust in our own strength or ability to do anything good for ourselves. We trust in the Lord alone to do things that are of eternal value for us. And so we pray that he would show up today and do that. And let's go ask him now for that. Let's pray to him. Father, we come to you acknowledging our frailty. We've been reminded of that in very sobering ways even this weekend. This life so often is hard and full of pain and things that are beyond our understanding. Father, if we're going to understand anything rightly, you must be our teacher. If we are ever going to be rescued from our own weakness and corruption and sin, you must do that as well. So we pray, Father, that you would come and show your love and mercy and grace and faithfulness to us yet again today. As we open your word, be our teacher. Show us yourself. Show us ourselves. Show us what wisdom really is. And in doing that, show us your son and what he has done for us, even as we have sung about him this morning. Come and do these things now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think this is certainly true for everybody in this room, and I think it's true of most people in the world. Nobody wants to be a fool. Nobody sets out and makes it their life objective, their life mission to be a, a moron, to be a foolish person. But the reality is, as we've already been acknowledging, that we need to be taught wisdom. We don't have it naturally. We're not born with it. Proverbs, as we are making our way through this wonderful book of Scripture, Proverbs teaches us about wisdom. Wisdom that's real because it's wisdom in light of God's plan of redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. And integral pieces of that real wisdom are trusting the Lord and not ourselves. We've alluded to that a number of times today. Trusting the Lord and not ourselves for our salvation. Trusting the Lord and not ourselves for our sanctification and growth in the faith. Trusting the Lord and not ourselves even for our growth in knowledge and understanding and wisdom. Another integral piece of this real wisdom that the Lord is teaching us is love of neighbor. This matters to God very much. That we would live with one another in such a way that we love one another. And also... This real wisdom that comes from God entails walking humbly before him and walking humbly with one another. These things matter, not only in the eyes of God, for the people of God, but these things matter on the ground for our lives. And we're going to be considering them today from Proverbs chapter 3. And so if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Proverbs chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry about that. We'll get the verses up here on the screen for you to be able to follow along with us as we make our way through this chapter. So before we do anything else, we're going to read God's word, beginning with Proverbs 3 and verse 1. I'll be reading all the way through to verse 35, the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by his wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid, and when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow and I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I'm going to preach the sermon today in three parts. Part one, part two, part three. I'll give them to you one at a time. We're going to make our way through Proverbs chapter three. Part one, we're going to entitle it, Trust the Lord. Very straightforward, not very creative. Part one, Trust the Lord. We're going to look at verses one to 12. And just a disclaimer before anybody gets anxious, like 20 minutes into part one, it will be long uh, compared to the other ones. It will be longer. Part two will be much more brief, just to comfort you ahead of time. So we trust the Lord by doing various things. We trust the Lord in various ways in our lives. And we're going to consider these things from these first 12 verses of Proverbs 3. So first of all, kind of a subheading underneath part one of trust the Lord. We trust him by holding to his teaching, verses 1 to 4. We trust the Lord by holding to his teaching. It's important for us to remember, as we look to Proverbs 3 and verse 1, you're going to see Solomon writing to his proverbial son to not forget his teaching. Do not forget my commandments. We must remember that the instruction of the Father in Proverbs is at the same time divine instruction. Right? So that's how we should understand this as we read it. Son, do not forget my teaching. Keep my commandments. It will be a good thing for you if you do. Cling fast to steadfast love and faithfulness. Hold on to it. 
Don't let it forsake you. Don't let it escape you. Cling to it with all your might. And do that through the teaching that's being given. Bind steadfast love and faithfulness around your neck and write these things on the tablet of your heart. It will be a good thing for you, my son, if you do that. If you write these things on your heart and you bind them around your neck. But we also trust the Lord by relying completely on him, verses 5 to 8. Not only do we hold to his teaching, we rely completely on him. Put your eyes on verse 5. These are familiar verses to many I trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Trust God completely. Don't lean on your own understanding. Use it, sure. Use your brain. Use your reason. Use your understanding, yes, but do not rely upon it as though it will never lead you astray. Rely completely, though, upon the Lord and his promises revealed to you in his word. Verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make your paths straight, or he will make straight your paths. So acknowledge the Lord in all your ways, in all your life. This is simply the way a person lives who knows and fears the Lord. This is not a call to like spiritualize everything in life. This is not a call to try to read through the lines of every providence. This is a call to a simple way of living through the ups and downs, through the epic and the mundane. Where we live life in this world knowing that God and truth remain. We live life in this world knowing and trusting that God is. Knowing that he reigns. That he has told us what is good. That he has also told us what is evil and harmful. Knowing that he has made promises to us. And that he has promised to deliver on all those promises. So to acknowledge the Lord in all your ways is simply to live life that way. Underneath that banner, acknowledging those things, trusting those things as you live your life. We're told that in all our ways acknowledge him, the Lord will make straight our paths. This is an eternal promise that God is making here. In Proverbs, even in chapter 2, we saw this kind of contrast between a crooked path that the wicked take And also the path of the righteous that leads to inhabiting the land forever. We thought about that last Sunday. The straight path is the way of the righteous that leads to eternal life. As opposed to the crooked path that is the way of the wicked that leads to death and destruction. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. It's an eternal promise. Verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. That's very straightforward. Fear the Lord, revere him, walk humbly before your God. Do not think yourself wiser than you are. I was talking to brother before the service and we were acknowledging this very reality. How prone we are to do this. And this has always been true of human beings. We always think more highly of ourselves than we should. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Like we thought about last Sunday, God's truth, and even the Christian life, while it is unfathomably deep, like we'll plumb the depths of it for our entire life and never hit bottom. At the same time, it is refreshingly and sometimes shockingly simple. In that, 
If God tells us it's good and will do good things in our lives, we pursue it with all our hearts. And if he tells us it's bad, that it's wicked, and that it'll wreck our lives, we run from it. Here again we see, fear the Lord, turn away from evil. This will be, verse 8, like healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It will be life-giving to you, to your entire person. So just a brief reflection, friends, even at this point in Proverbs 3. Self-reliance is a big problem, biblically. Self-reliance is a big problem, biblically. We're told in Scripture about our first parents. We're told how God made the world and made humans uniquely in his image. We're told about how they were made originally good and upright without sin. They were in right relationship with God, and they fell. They transgressed God's covenant that he had made with them and plunged the entire human race into ruin. And so now we are born into a state or a condition of sin. It's important for us to understand that the bad things we do are not what make us corrupt. We are corrupt and therefore we do bad things. That's the biblical teaching and there's a world of difference between the two. So to start with, why can you not rely on yourself? Why can I not rely upon myself? It's because we all have inherited this disease called sin and corruption from Adam, our first father. So this condemns us from the start before the Lord because we are born corrupt. We don't need to do anything in order to make ourselves corrupt. We are born that way. And then we sin because it is in our nature to do so. And we are all sin-sick wretches. The Bible is very clear in how it describes the human race. Very early on after the fall of man, we see not only Cain killing his brother Abel, but we see God in Genesis chapter 6. This is before the flood wipes out everybody on earth save Noah and his family. God looks at the world and sees that the thoughts of man's heart and the desires of man's heart were only evil continually. We're told in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the heart of man is desperately sick and that no one can understand it. This is why we can't trust ourselves and why self-reliance is a big problem. But self-reliance is a big problem, not only because of our corruption, but because we are unable to do what God requires in order to earn his favor. We are wired with this legal scheme in our minds and hearts. We naturally think in these terms of merit and I'm going to do something. I'm going to earn this thing. I even, we think also in terms of deserving certain things. This is how we talk. The biblical presentation, though, is that we are unable and unwilling to do what God requires in order to earn or merit his favor. The reality is that we never could do enough. No matter how hard we try, no matter how disciplined we are, 
It will never be enough to do what God requires to merit eternal life. It's like we sing in Rock of Ages about the fact that God must save. When we sing the words about nothing in our hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, right? We're talking about God doing the work, but even in the verse prior to that, we sing of our zeal, if even if my zeal could no respite know, could my tears forever flow? Could I be the most zealous person on the face of the planet? Could I be the most emotionally like, sensible person before God on the face of the earth? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. So here comes our regular Great and first commandment reminder. This happens about once every two months here at CBC, so we're, we're doing this today. Whenever we start to think, and again, I was talking with a brother before the service and we were acknowledging this reality. Whenever life's going pretty well and we're reading the Bible regularly and we feel like morally we've had a good week or whatever, we tend to trust in ourselves a little bit. We tend to think, I'm doing a good job. God must be pleased with me in how I'm doing this thing. Lest we ever go to a place of starting to trust in what we're doing, let's just assess ourselves according to the first and great commandment very briefly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And everybody says, I'm done. I've never done it. I've never done that for a single second of my existence. I want to. I want to. And I've never done it. In the context, when Jesus is asked the question by the scribe in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the scribe asks him, what's the greatest commandment? And he, Jesus gives it to him. Implication, you do this and you'll live forever. The only problem is nobody can. Nobody can. One of the problems that rears its head in the church sometimes is that the law of God and the requirements of God can be so relativized that we delude ourselves into thinking that we can actually pull this thing off. It happens a lot. We start to talk about how we should live, what moral uprightness looks like, and we start to sort of equate that to the requirements of God. Well, if I can just live a relatively morally upright life, if I can do these things and abstain from these things, then I will have done well in the eyes of God. We delude ourselves into thinking that we can actually pull off the Christian life. I'm doing pretty well lately. God must be pleased with me, we think. But we ought never, according to Scripture, to rely upon ourselves or trust in ourselves in any way because not only are we corrupt, not only could we never do what God requires, we are all in desperate need of what only Jesus can provide for us. So, don't trust yourself, trust Christ is a simple exhortation and takeaway from Proverbs 3. Do not rely on yourself. Rely completely on the Lord Jesus. When you come in faith to this table today, have that in your brain, in your mind, in your heart. I am coming to cast myself completely upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. I'm bringing nothing to this table other than my sin. I'm turning from it and I'm running to Christ because it's my only hope. We are weak it's good that we would acknowledge that. We are sinners still. Even the believers in the room are sinners still. And we fail, like all the time. But Jesus is strong. 
And Jesus is sinless, and he has never failed once, nor will he ever. He has done for us what we could never do for ourselves, which I trust is why you're here. I trust it's why we gather, because we show up here every Sunday knowing that we are in need and that we are weak and that we are corrupt, that we are broken, that we're wretches in need of what only Jesus can give us. He has accomplished everything required of God. He has done everything. He has atoned for sin. He has borne God's wrath. He has fulfilled all righteousness and secured our resurrection. He has saved God's people for all time. And it's so over that he's sitting down in heaven. Him sitting down is symbolic of the fact that there is no work left to be done when it comes to the redemption of God's people. He has done it all. There is nothing left to be done by him. And the shocking reality in terms of what's required of us to stand before God, there is nothing left to be done by you or me. Now, will we do stuff? Yes, we will do stuff. Will we do good works? Yes, we will, because they have been prepared beforehand for us to walk in, Ephesians 2.10. But in terms of what needs to be done, what must I do in order to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will be saved. Don't rely on anything that you could do. Rely on Christ Alone, because all the satisfaction and righteousness and holiness of Jesus is counted to sinners by faith. Sometimes in the church, you hear slogans and catchy phrases. We're like anybody on the planet. I mean, Christians do this, right? We want to come up with things that are catchy and that will stick and that are clever. And cleverness is fine as long as it's accurate, right? But one of the, the buzzwords in the church or buzz phrases in the church in, in recent years sometimes is you'll hear people talk and they'll say, they'll say, we need to do the gospel or we need to live the gospel. And I'm sympathetic to what people mean. I, I trust they mean that we need to live in light of the gospel and we need to live out the implications of the gospel. That's all fair and good. But it's really important that we grasp and own the fact that we do not do the gospel. The church does not. The church does not live the gospel. There is one person who did the gospel. There's one person who lived the gospel, and his name is Jesus, and we trust him. Now, we live under it. We live in it. We live in light of it. We live out the implications of it. All of that is true. But we do not do the gospel. Jesus did. Praise be to his name. The message of the gospel has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Christ and what he has done for you. Back to the text. So we're just thinking about not relying upon ourselves, trusting in God alone. We're going to continue to trust the Lord by honoring him with our stuff, verses 9 and 10. I'm not going to labor this right now. Very straightforward. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And in this old covenant context, with that, With that honoring of God with your wealth, he is going to bless your produce. He's going to fill your barns. Implication for us, 
Honor the Lord with your stuff, and it will not be in vain. He is a faithful and good God. He will honor that in your life. Now, he may not honor it in the ways that you think he should, but he will honor it, and it will be good for you. Verses 11 and 12, we trust in the Lord by not despising his discipline. This is big. We trust in the Lord by not despising his discipline. Look at verses 11 and 12. We're told very straightforwardly, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof or be weary of his correction of you. Because, verse 12, the Lord reproves, the Lord corrects him whom he loves as a father would do to a son in whom he delights. So this is big for us. Trusting in the Lord. We trust in the Lord for our salvation, as I've already said. We trust in the Lord for our sanctification, our transformation. We don't change our own hearts. God does. We don't sanctify ourselves. The Holy Spirit of God does that in us. And He does that. God does that through his loving discipline in our lives. Now, if you're like me, some of your experiences, perhaps, in the church, when holiness and sanctification are talked about, it's often done in a very threatening way. It's done with an exacting tone. It's done almost kind of, the posture is one of scolding people toward holiness. But, The question is, is that the picture that the Bible paints? Now, there is harsh language in the Scripture about sin, even in the New Testament. But those cases of very harsh language are reserved for a few specific scenarios. They're reserved for unrepentant sin, right? I'm sinning, I don't care. Harsh language is required there. We see that in the New Testament. Another thing would be, I'm doing something that God calls sin, but I'm not going to call it sin. Harsh language is used there. Sometimes just very gross immorality that even, like, for example, 1 Corinthians 5, that's being celebrated by the church. So in 1 Corinthians 5, there's a man who's sleeping with his stepmom, and Paul says, rather than being grieved by this, you're arrogant about it. You think that this is somehow an expression of Christian freedom. It's not. Even pagans know this is wrong. Harsh language. And then fourthly, the harshest language in all of the New Testament is when the apostles defend the gospel and defend its integrity and keep people from working the law back into it. Now, having said that, the question is, to the saints who are trusting the Lord, battling their own corruption, is the language of sanctification in the Scripture, is it threatening? So here in Proverbs 3, we're told that God disciplines. That means He sanctifies those whom he loves and delights in. And the writer of the Hebrews unpacks this even more for us. So we are, because this is cited, Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 is cited in Hebrews 12, which we read earlier today. We're going to look at Hebrews 12 for just a moment together. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can flip over to the 12th chapter of Hebrews. Bruce is going to get the verses up on the screen for us for just a moment. We're going to look at some of this chapter together in thinking about trusting the Lord to transform our lives and what that looks like in our experience. And the fact that God is doing this not because he's angry, but because he loves us. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, we're just going to survey this together. It's wonderful. 
Therefore, the writer says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Lay aside everything that would weigh you down. Lay aside sin which clings so closely. What a true statement that is. How often in your life is that your experience that sin is clinging to you? And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? By looking to Jesus. Verse 2. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That joy set before him, by the way, is the inheritance of his people forever. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There he is again, seated at the right hand of God. Now, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Christ and what he endured, so that you might be stirred up and spurred on in the Christian life. Verse 4, And your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, which Jesus did for you. Verse 5, And have you forgotten, here we go, he's citing Proverbs 3, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He's going to go on and unpack this for us. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, not as enemies, as children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's a rhetorical question. Answer, there aren't any. At least if your father is a good one. And God is perfect. Verse 8. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So when you should be concerned is if the Lord were not reproving and correcting you. When you should be concerned is when the Lord is not working in your life to transform you. Besides this, verse 9, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? lesser to the greater. If we respected the discipline that was imperfect from our fallen earthly fathers, how much more so would we respect and in one sense be thankful for the perfect discipline of a perfect God? Verse 10, for they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Store that away. That's big. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All right, quick pause button. The book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is greater than everything. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron, the high priest of Israel. He is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He has accomplished redemption, and it's over. He has sat down. When the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 2 tells us not to neglect such a great salvation, what he means is do not neglect the salvation that is yours in Christ and return to the law that was a type and a shadow and a pointer to Christ who would fulfill it all. That's the point of the letter. So Christ is greater. Trust him. Have that in view beginning in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
Strengthen your weak hands, your weak knees, your feebleness. Strengthen yourself. Bear up under the discipline of God. Strive for peace with everyone. And strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, what did verse 11 tell us God is doing by disciplining us? He disciplines us, verse 11, or excuse me, verse 10, end of verse 10, my bad. End of verse 10, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. He is producing holiness in you by disciplining you. So when we are then told, strive for holiness, we ought not see that as a threatening reality. We ought to look at what Christ has done for us and realize that God, our Heavenly Father, loves us and is sanctifying us to the point that we might share in His holiness, verse 10, it only then makes sense that we would be exhorted, bear up under the loving discipline of God, strive for peace with everybody, and pursue holiness. We pursue that holiness, not chasing after our eternal security and our standing as a child of God. We chase after holiness knowing that we've been adopted, loved, and known by our Father, and that He is doing His good work in us. It's a very, very different thing. We pursue holiness from a piece of security, not out of fear. We do it because it's a delight. We don't do it out of dread. Trust the Lord, cling to His Word, rest upon Him alone, and trust Christ alone for your salvation. Trust the Lord also as He sanctifies you. Part two. We've made our way through the big part one. Part two is the blessings of wisdom. The blessings of wisdom. We're back in Proverbs now. Proverbs 3. The blessings of wisdom. We're going to look at verses 13 to 20 very briefly. We've considered wisdom and its value a lot the last two weeks. So we're going to just survey these verses together. Verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Verse 14. For gain, wisdom is so valuable. Blessed is the one who finds her because she is more valuable. The gain from her is better than the gain you would get from silver or from gold or even from precious jewels, verse 15. And nothing that you desire is better than her. Wisdom, knowing and trusting God in Christ is greater than anything you could ever desire. Verses 16 to 18, wisdom holds every good thing. Long life is in her right hand. Her left hand hold riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all of her paths are paths of peace. Shalom is the word there. And we even see in verse 18 that wisdom also holds the blessings of the tree of life. She is a tree of life for those who lay hold of her. That language of the tree of life is not accidental. It's a big theme in scripture. We're familiar with it in the early chapters of Genesis where there is a tree of life. And there's also a tree of life later in the new heavens and the new earth. Verses 19 to 20, we're told about the power and the effectiveness of wisdom. Wisdom is so powerful that by wisdom, God founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge from God are incredibly effective and powerful. Part three. We're going to move forward. Part three, wisdom and relating to our neighbor. Wisdom and relating to our neighbor. We're going to look at verses 21 to 35 together now for the rest of our time together. 
So these verses contain a series of exhortations. Some of them are about wisdom in general. Some are aimed specifically at how we live with our neighbor. So in verses 21 to 24, if you put your eyes there, we're basically told by Solomon, he tells his proverbial son, do not lose sight of wisdom and discretion. The emphasis here in these verses is on the blessing and the protection that wisdom will bring for your life, like we considered last week. In verses 25 and 26, we're encouraged to not be afraid because the Lord will be your confidence. The Lord will protect you. And again, here we see eternal promises. It's not that bad things will never happen to believers, but it's that ultimately we are secure. We are safe, eternally speaking. Verse 27. Now, in verse 27 begins just some really good, simple, like straightforward, like you're going to think, well, no kidding, brother, no kidding, Solomon. That's, that's obviously good and right. But we need to be reminded of these things when it comes to how we live with our neighbor and how we live with one another. It's refreshing in its simplicity. Verse 27, he says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it's due when it is in your power to do it. So shorten that up and summarize it. Do good to other people when you have the ability to do so. It's a great exhortation. It's a great principle to put in our minds and in our hearts. So much as it is up to me, as much as I have ability, let me do good to other people. It's very simple. It's very good. Verse 28. Solomon encourages his son, do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow and I will give it when you have it with you. Don't inconvenience your neighbor by keeping something from them when you have the thing in question with you. Consider your neighbor. Love them. If there's something that you're supposed to give them or are planning to give them and you have it with you, go ahead and give it to them. It's very simple. It's very like down to earth. Don't make them make another trip to come get the thing that you've told them you'll give them because you've got it with you now. Again, it's so simple. It's so good in thinking about how to love and consider our neighbor. It's kindness towards those that we live with and live among. Verse 29. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Implication, plan good toward your neighbor. Don't plan evil, plan good. This is because your neighbor lives beside you and trusts you that you're not going to do him or her harm. I trust most in the room, you get this picture. You live maybe in an apartment complex or some kind of subdivision, or you've got neighbors nearby somehow. Think about your living arrangement. You live near people, and your assumption, even though you know the world has fallen, your assumption is that your neighbor is going to do right by you to some degree. Again, the simple goodness here is self-evident. Don't ever plan things against your neighbor that would violate their trust. Do right by your neighbor. Don't give them a reason to lock their doors, so to speak. Don't give them a reason to. Don't give them a reason to worry about their kids playing in the front yard. Treat them as you want to be treated. Watch over their things and their property as you would want them to watch over your things and your property and not do evil with it. Be protective of their kids the way you would want them to be of yours. We could go on. We get the imagery. Verse 30. Do not contend with a man for no reason. 
when he has done you no harm. Don't be antagonistic and combative with your neighbor when someone has done you no harm. He's not saying don't defend yourself if you've been harmed, but don't be combative and antagonistic toward people who have not harmed you. Can't help but reading verse 30 and think, man, we would be really helped by a substantial dose of that in our context. Because antagonism and combativeness and argumentativeness and misrepresenting other people and power struggles and strife of all kinds abound in our society. It's a brief reflection together, brothers and sisters, on especially verses 27 to 30, this really good stuff on loving neighbor. We should strive to make these things that are described in these verses true in the church. We should strive to make these things true in the church. Now, they may not be true in the world at large. They might not be true in our country, our state, or even across our city, but we can start here. We start here in the local church. We can love one another in a way that points to Jesus. We can love our neighbors in a way that is all kinds of good for them and invites them in to the church and points them to Jesus. When the church is functioning as God intended, it is a place of love and unity and peace. When the church is functioning as God intended, it is a haven for sinners who know they're sinners. It is a place of honesty where everyone understands their desperate need of Christ. It is a place where mercy and grace and absolution and compassion really exist. Because those things don't exist in the world. When the church is functioning as God intended it, it is a place of wisdom where righteousness is loved and evil is hated. And when the church is functioning as God intended, it is a place where all kinds of good is done toward neighbor. And the question is, who would not want to be a part of something like that? Where those things are true. Where I'm going to be loved, I'm going to be known, I'm going to be safe. There's wisdom. We love righteousness here. We hate things that are evil, that destroy people's lives. And we're all kinds of good for our neighbor. Verse 31. We're nearing the end of our time. Do not envy a man of violence, nor choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. Don't choose the way of evil or pride. Don't envy a man of violence, no matter what he has that you think you might want. And don't live as he does. Because the Lord is against such people. But the upright are in the Lord's confidence. They are in his favor. Verse 33. In the final three verses of the chapter, we see the outcomes of the two ways of life. On the one hand, there are the wicked, the proud, and the foolish. And on the other hand, there are the righteous, the humble, and the wise. In verse 33, we see that the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. And here we keep in mind texts like Psalm 73 where Asaph realizes, he wrestles, right, with how the wicked prosper. But Asaph in Psalm 73 realizes that the end of the wicked is terrible. They might do okay for a season, but their end is terrible. The righteous may suffer for a season, but their end is blessedness forever with God. So we have to keep those things in mind. When we see that language of cursing and blessedness, we think eternal realities, right? Verse 34, we see that the Lord is scornful 
towards scorners or he is scornful toward the proud. He opposes them. But to the humble, he gives favor. He gives grace. The New Testament writers pick this up, cited in James 4 and 1 Peter 5. They cite this verse. They call the saints, James and Peter do, to humility before God and toward one another because they reiterate the Lord opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then verse 35, we're reminded yet again that the wise will inherit honor, but fools will reap what they sow. They will inherit disgrace. So closing reflection for us, brothers and sisters, as we land the plane, Proverbs has much to say about wisdom and foolishness, about wisdom and folly. And in light of today's text, thinking about self-reliance and thinking about humility in particular, before the Lord and before one another, it's hard to find something more foolish than self-righteousness and pride. Full stop. It is hard to find something more foolish than self-righteousness and pride in light of the revelation of God's word. Both are an epidemic, not just in the world, but in the church too, if we're honest. This is related to a lot of things. It's related to a misunderstanding of God's holiness. I mean, self-righteousness just does not stand before a holy God. It cannot. Pride cannot be a reality before the holy God of the universe. I mean, we see that very clearly depicted in the Bible. But this epidemic of pride and self-righteousness, it's related also to a misunderstanding of who and what we are. We've thought about that a decent amount today. We think we're better than we are. We think too highly of ourselves. Pride and self-righteousness are related to a misunderstanding of our standing before God and what gives us that standing before him. In Adam, in ourselves, left to ourselves, we're done. We're bankrupt. In Christ, because of him alone, we are declared righteous. We are loved. We are accepted. God delights in us, in Christ Jesus. Pride and self-righteousness come from a misunderstanding of the righteous requirements of God's law. If you think you can do the law, you will take pride in what you think you've done. But to understand the holy and righteous requirements of God's law, like Jesus unpacks in the Sermon on the Mount, condemns every human being. If you were to mark iniquities, O Lord, O Lord, who could stand? No one. We recently made our way through Mark's gospel and we saw that Jesus was really hard on people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And he was hard on people who thought that they could achieve righteousness. He was very gentle and compassionate, on the other hand, to those who knew who they were and knew their desperate need of righteousness that they did not have. Thinking we can actually be good enough to escape God's judgment is foolishness. Thinking we can be good enough to escape, and by good enough I mean on our own. Thinking that we can contribute something, we can do something to deliver ourselves from God's judgment is folly. To think that we can actually be good enough to earn God's favor in any measure is folly. It's foolish. And it leads nowhere good. And this is the thing. I think we're happy to acknowledge that reality when it comes to our justification, like being declared righteous and reconciled to God. But where I sometimes think we fall off the horse is when it comes to our sanctification and growth in the faith. 
we tend to think that somehow after conversion this is different. That we somehow now can contribute something. That we now, like when Jesus died on the cross, we say this sometimes. It's like he said, you know, I've done my part, now go and do yours. It's not what he said. We, we think that somehow now, post-conversion, the, the economy is different. It's just as true after conversion as it was before conversion that to think that we can do something to merit God's favor is foolish. God in Christ has justified us. We have been reconciled to God and declared righteous. God in Christ, by His Spirit, is sanctifying us. And God in Christ will glorify us. God, God, God is the one who does it. Not, not us. It's not as though we're saved by grace through the work of Christ in our place, and then upon conversion we revert back to a law economy. It doesn't work like that. You see, thinking... We've got to talk about this because this is where pride and self-righteousness often come from. Thinking that you can pull off the Christian life. Now, of course, we acknowledge, by God's grace, with God's help, we throw that language in there. Of course we do. But thinking that to some degree that you can pull off the Christian life either leads to despair because you're aware of all the ways that you're failing, or it leads to pride and self-righteousness. Because you're going to be proud of the things that you think you've done. And then what we're going to start doing is comparing ourselves to one another. I clearly you know, am better at this thing called the Christian life than that person. This is where this comes from. Because we think that we have done something. And there are no more people, excuse me, there are no people more insufferable than those who think they are less sinful than others. And that they are so because of their discipline and effort. I'll say that again. There are no people more insufferable than those who think they are less sinful than other people and who think that they are that because of their discipline and effort. It destroys unity in the church. It destroys safety in the church. Rather than despairing of what we can't do, and taking pride in what we think we can do. Paul outlines the posture of a Christian very well. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16, he says these things. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. It's remarkable. Paul, the apostle, the, the man who wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else, one of the great founders of the church, says that he is the foremost of sinners. It's, it's noteworthy as well that he uses the present tense verb. He doesn't say, of, of whom I was the foremost. He says, of whom I am the foremost. It seems that the man still knows he's a sinner. He also he wrote Romans 7 and he wrote Galatians 5 and all these passages where he outlines his struggle against his own sin. Paul knows he's still a sinner of the worst kind because there aren't any other kind. And I don't think, I, I'm sure you agree, I don't think he's blowing smoke just to make a point. I trust he's sincere. I don't think it's just lip service. 
And he says also that he received this mercy so that Jesus might be able to display his perfect patience to all the saints. I, God has been merciful with me, the foremost of sinners. He still is merciful with me and gracious toward me. Jesus is so patient with me, and he's doing that because if he's patient with me, wretch as I am, you can know that he will be patient with you too. Praise God for that. Talk about humility. There's not a whiff of self-righteousness in that. There's no pride in that. This is also the same man that in Philippians 3 talks about how he was a rock star Pharisee and was just knocking it out of the park. And how when it comes to righteousness according to the law, he was better than anybody. But he says that he accounts that as nothing. It's of no value. Why? Because now I have a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in anything that I've done. I don't take pride in it either. If I count it as nothing, I'm not, I'm not boasting in that. Praise God for the words of Paul to help us even think about humility and the exhortation here in Proverbs. This is the posture of humility. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And I received this mercy so that Jesus might be able to display his grace and mercy and patience and love to all the saints. It's the posture of humility. It's the posture of wisdom. And may it be our posture also. Let's pray. Father. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for Christ who did come and bleed for our helpless race. We do pray that you would continue to teach us how desperate we are before you. Continue to teach us of our need of you. Father, you are glorified when we confess our need for you and for the work of Christ and for the work of your spirit. So continue to drive those things into our hearts and minds, we pray. Continue to change us and transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Help us as we consider today to not only trust you, but to love our neighbor and to walk humbly before you and with others. We know that this is the fruit and the work of your spirit alone. So do it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.